Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And by the way, I recently just set up kind of a one-stop hub for all things Bubble Hour slash Unpickled. You can find that at jeanmccarthy.ca where you can see my face if you're wondering what face goes with this particular voice and uh, you'll find links there to this show and blog and other things that I'm up to including a book that I'm writing and currently seeking representation for which has been the bulk of my activity this summer and I did just take a couple weeks off I really enjoyed the time it was very family intensive and um it was one of those things where I got home and needed a vacation to recover from my vacation, but um, it's been a really great summer so far, and I hope yours is going well, too. Today on the podcast, I would like you to meet Jacob Evans. Jacob is a man in recovery who spends his life now helping others, and he's going to tell us all about what his experience was like before, during, and after the transition in his life. Jacob, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We set this up right before you started your vacation, so I'm glad to hear that it went well. It did. It did. And I I, I got my life is kind of a vacation right now. Like, I have no complaints. <laughs> so I recognize that for some people, when they go on vacation, it's actually a big deal. But um, I'm like a retired grandma, so I, I, I'm not doing the 9-to-5 grind anymore. So sometimes a vacation is like more work than it's worth for me. But anyway, I, so I, whenever I say vacation, I'm, I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> but... Um, it's stages of life right every stage yeah yeah I mean I actually just um my wife and I just welcomed our three-month-old in and so Uh for about uh yeah beautiful baby girl and so whenever um you know I have my two weeks or which is what the state of California allows men to take um like that wasn't really much of a vacation but it was like amazing to be able to to you know to spend that time with her and the baby and then recently I had a four day vacation and it was like a return back to it again where I, because she spends most of her time um, taking care of the baby. It was like, now it's my turn. So even though I didn't have to go into work, I was definitely working. So I can, I can understand that, you know, in different seasons of life, sometimes vacations actually end up being work too. It's true. It's true. A change is as good as a rest, they say, but I don't think that's true necessarily for new parents because I actually have a three-month-old <laughs> grandson, and um, oh, I wow. held him for about 15 minutes last night, and I said to my daughter-in-law, my back is killing me. I don't know how you do this. <laughs> but there's a reason why you they have children when, it, when you're young. Yeah, they do. But there's still like a little sweet little blob in your arm. So they're like in no way helping you hold them, right? They're just like heavier. Uh, well, that's wonderful. So you're at you a know. really exciting stage of life, a newlywed mm-hmm. and yeah. a new baby and and you're in recovery. So I'm really eager to hear how all of this is working for you and how recovery is serving you in these new roles in your life. Before we get to that, Jacob, take take us back. Tell us a bit about yourself and where Mm -hmm. where your story starts and and how it brings you to today. 
Yeah, of course. I think the the easiest way for me to start is is at the beginning. And so in order to kind of understand some context and understand like what, what really went into shaping the way that I thought and then the, the things that wound up happening in my life. So I was born in West Virginia, uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia. It's a super small town um, in, in a state that not even many people know is a state. And so there, my, uh, my dad was one of five children. and My mom was one of four. And they both worked extremely, extremely hard. Um, to put themselves through school, both overachievers. And uh, my dad wound up becoming a dentist, and my mom wound up becoming a presidential appointee um, throughout several administrations. And so I was raised in, like, a super high-achieving household. And ever since I was young, I can remember it was, um, you know, my best effort was what was expected every single, like, no matter what it was. If I could answer that I could have done better on a test, even if it was an A-, minus, then, like, I was expected to do better, you know? So that was kind of like the setup and the pretext for it. And I think because of that, I I started to self-impose perfectionism in myself. Um, Not to say that my parents did did that by any means. Again, it was just, you know, we want you to do your best. Um, Oftentimes, I put that expectation on myself. I did it from a super, super, super young age. Like I can remember being in fourth grade and testing for the gifted program. And then um, excelling in certain areas, but then there was one area where, where I didn't, and because I didn't, I had like a complete nervous breakdown in fourth grade, which is like, you know, to my to my testament now, looking back on it, it's kind of comical, but um, you know, back then it was super serious. And then I think that that's like a key indication that like I didn't deal with stress very well, I didn't deal with disappointment very well. Um, it was like one of those moments in my life where I can see. Um, you know, that I didn't necessarily handle emotions this, the, the best way. And so, you know, you fast forward a little bit. I was in high school, really, 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 um, you know, active. I was a football player, um, played varsity football all four years. I was a, um, you know, I was in jazz band. I played guitar. I had my own band where I wrote my own music. Um, I was in show choir. I did, I did track. I was an honor roll student, so I had all of these things going for me, and I was super, super, super involved in a lot of stuff. And I feel like that the main reason why I did that was because I, I really wanted to kind of escape what it was that I was going through in my teenage years. Um, didn't necessarily have a strong sense of self or didn't really have um, you know, a lot of positive self-talk going on, even though I had all these accolades. And I remember whenever I was younger saying things to myself like, well, when this happens, then I'll be happy. Or like when this happens, then I'll be happy. And that was, you know, a theme that kept on playing for me over and over and over again. And I distinctly remember a conversation that I had with my dad in my junior year when uh, he used to have these projects that we would always work on around the house. And during one of these particular projects, he like looked over at me and told me that, um, you know, hard work is what brings good luck. Good luck just doesn't happen. It's through hard work. And that really became like a theme for me. And so I started working hard in absolutely everything that I felt like I was interested in. And so in my senior year, there's this thing in West Virginia called the Dent Step Program, which is a pre-acceptance program in the dental school. And they only accept three students. And there was over 1,500 applicants. And I was one of those three students who wound up becoming accepted. And 
for me, I had this music that I was working on that I was super passionate about, and I was working hard on that. And then I had just started um, college, and like I was pre-accepted into dental school, so I had the pressures of that. And in the music scene, once you hit the collegiate like college circuit, and then touring around and doing things along those lines, uh, substances almost goes hand in hand with that scene. So that was my first real introduction into a lot of the, the harder drugs that, um, that I had never had access to before because of the type of surroundings that I had, you know, football and drug testing and things along those lines. So it started off, I would say, um, innocent enough. But the minute that I ingested those substances, all those fears, those worries, those pressures that I had put on myself um, evaporated, like all at once. And for the first time ever, I felt like I was able to breathe. And my anxiety, like those self-defeating beliefs, all that stuff, I stopped, I stopped comparing myself to other people. And, and it felt like it was a relief to me at the time. And long story short, I wound up deciding that I didn't want to do dental school, that I was going to pursue music full time. So I dropped out of school, not in the best way possible. And what wound up happening was that I pursued music, got my recording engineering certification, dove even deeper into um, psychedelics and things along those lines. And I remember looking over at, at my mentor at the time and seeing his, his jeans ripped up. Um, he had like longer hair, but was balding on top. Um, looked like he was trapped in the decade in which he got into the music industry and started working this job. And I asked myself, is that really where I want to be? For the rest of my life the way that I am right now and the answer was no so I went back to school decided I would pursue a legal education and got involved again and like a, as much stuff as possible I was academic chair of a fraternity I was student body um, I started running for student government I was um, student body vice president at one point um, top 10% of my law school class and then what wound up happening at the very end was that that next year I'm um, in law school I wound up um, crashing and burning because I was having this huge um, addiction issue that had spawned itself over the course of time. And so at the end of it, my the substance that wound up really taking a, a toll on me after graduating college and then going into law school was opiate. And I was introduced to it actually on a National Model United Nations trip. And I had only used it for three days. And by the end of that trip, I was already physically addicted. Like I felt the physical withdrawal. And then once I realized that's what it was, I, I didn't turn back and I continued using for almost two years straight. And it wasn't until the saving grace of a teacher and her coming forward to me and just like laying it out and just honestly, God, like having a lot of um, heart and compassion for my situation that I was able to see the fork in the road. And she simply just asked me one question, like, are you okay? And for whatever reason, that started a whole conversation between her and I to where I just laid everything out to her and told her everything that was going on. And then that started my treatment journey, which is a whole other journey. But um, that's when I made the decision that I wanted to get sober. That must have been quite a conversation. I, I wonder if that teacher was prepared for your answer when she asked you, are you okay? <laughs> um, if if, yeah, if she really understood, was, you know, how what was going on there, but you must've been ready to talk. Do you think you were ready to, you were waiting for someone to ask you or what, what made that day different than, you know, you walk in the kitchen and your mom says, how was your day? How, what made that day different? 
Um, well, so I think that I had built um, this false reality around me that everything was okay um, because I had the accolades, because I had, um, you know, on paper it looked like my life was together, but I was holding it together by a thread. And mm-hmm. again, like my best effort was what was always expected. Hard work brings good luck. Like these are these are two things that really dominated much of my thinking. And I knew I wasn't giving my best effort because I was giving my best effort to finding substances. So I think that was playing a huge role in my psyche. And then I also think that like I wasn't working hard because I did, I couldn't like the hardest thing that I worked for was how to keep the, you know, that feeling away from, from getting sick. And when it comes to her and being prepared for that conversation, I, I think again, like she had just like a lot of strength because she pulled out this attendance sheet and she's like, I've been following you and tracking you. And she was like, late, 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 late on time, on time, late, 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 late. And she was like, and on these days that you're late, you're, you're not on point. But on, on the days that you're on time, you're bringing up nuances in the law that even I wouldn't pick up on. And she's like, so you're brilliant, but you're hurting yourself. And then she went on to tell me about how um, she had a personal story of addiction and how it saved her life when somebody had a similar conversation with her. And so she opened it up with a lot of trust and like a lot of, um, she, she shared a very vulnerable side of her. And then that allowed me to really just, you know, spill it out because I didn't know anybody else who had really gone through what it was that I was going through. Like I didn't, other than people that were actually doing it in the moment, but no one who had gone through the other side. So she really saw signs of something she recognized and, and reached out with compassion and hope. What happened next? Yeah. So after that, we, she marched me down to the Dean's office and I had to tell the whole story again to the Dean. And um, she again met me with compassion. Like they set up a plan where I could actually put my education on hold and then come back to it whenever I was um, healthy. And they helped me create a plan to tell my mom about it because I hadn't, you know, my parents had no clue what was going on. And I'm sure that like they knew that I wasn't the same me and that there was something that was happening, but they weren't sure exactly what it was. And so the next thing that happened after that was I went into uh, a situation where I was withdrawn from school. um, And I had this looming thing in the background where I had to pretty much like let, in my opinion, at that time, I had to let my parents down. And uh, that, that was a scary, a scary thing to have to do. Um, Cause for all accounts and purposes, I was like the golden child. I'm one of two. And um, again, like on paper, I had like golden marks. And so my mom actually came into town that Thursday and I sat her down on a, on a chair and like grabbed her by the knees and looked her in the eyes and told her that I need help. And I don't know the extent of the help that I need, but I know I can't do it on my own. And I'm severely addicted to opiates. And it was a shock for sure. But I was in the car the very next day on my way back home and looking at treatment centers um, within, I want to say like four days. Like I tried to to do it on my own there and had no success. And then um, within like four days, I was like, I need more than this. And so we started looking up treatment centers and then that started the, the treatment center journey, which is a, um, it was a difficult and arduous one for me. 
I'm writing down as you're talking because I have so many questions about all of this. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like back and forth into mom mode, interviewer mode. Um, so, mm-hmm. so a lot of listeners are fascinated, including me, are fascinated by treatment because um, if you haven't gone through it, which I haven't, um, it's sort of that thing mm-hmm. that you you know you know you might have needed, but but didn't didn't do or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, we all have a lot of curiosity about it. So I wonder if you can kind of walk us through what happened next when it just like, what's it like to go into, I mean, I'm sure you were scared for starters. So maybe your memory isn't perfect. Can you just, can you just tell us about what that's like to, to, what is the process and what are the, what kind of treatment were you in first of all? and, And what was the process like? Of course. Yeah, no, that's not a problem at all. I can definitely dive into that. Um, actually, interestingly enough, like this is kind of well, this is one of the things that I do for for people now is help educate them and walk them through the treatment process. So, the easiest way to to state my experience was I did a Google search, which is what I feel like most people nowadays would do, um, and I Google search treatment centers, and the things that pop up are huge multinational conglomerates. Um, things like Foundations Recovery Network, um, you know, American Addiction Treatment Centers, like things like that. And so I wound up going with Foundations Recovery Network because it was the top one, had the most reviews. And so I called their their hotline and spoke to somebody. And my experience was super fast. So it was one phone conversation. I had a plane ticket, and I was on the plane all on the same day. And there's benefit, there's pros and there's cons to that. Um, one is that like they they really made sure that I the pro is that they made sure that I like didn't lose the fire to get sober so that's a good thing. Um, a con I would say was that I wasn't really able to do a lot of research into what it was exactly that I was going to be participating in. It was more so like I want to get sober. Okay, we have a program. Um, let's let's get you here. And so that was kind of how the beginning stages worked. Um, what wound up happening was is that I went into a 30-day treatment center, and the first three days, memory is definitely hazy. But I remember having a, a roommate there and him telling me his story just about how he was really suffering through, through a lot of different treatment centers and really just trying to figure out what ought to do. This was – I was 24, turning 25 whenever I decided to get sober – and this young man was 19, and he'd already been to 13 different treatment centers at that age and had died and, and um, you know, brought back to life at least three times, I believe. And I remember thinking to myself, like, is this really where I need to be? Like, am I, like, am I in the right spot? Because um, my situation didn't seem that bad. And that was a crucial mistake for me to, to have made at that juncture because – after that moment, the only thing that I did for the next 30 days was compare myself to other people. Mm-hmm. And in relationship, um, I was saying, well, you know, well, that guy's 40 years old and he has a family and he's still doing this. So, like, he's worse than I am. Or that, or that person's been to X amount of treatment centers and that's bad. Like, I'm not like that. So my situation was better. And I just kept comparing myself to people. And that was <laughs> not a good sign because I convinced myself – I would say probably by like day 15 or, or day, yeah, roughly day 15, about halfway through that I, I wasn't an addict. I convinced myself I just had this substance abuse issue. 
and it was a one-time thing. It was a fluke. Now that I'm off of it, I won't have a problem anymore. And if I'm being honest with you, um, I convinced myself of that so much. And tell me how, how this is for, for common sense. I convinced myself of that. And then on the plane ride back home, I drank a beer. I was like, I don't have a problem with alcohol. So I can drink a beer. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just so, so crazy. So it's like your addiction just sort of outlasted treatment, right? It was like, okay, I'll just take a back seat till you, <laughs> till I find an opportunity. Exactly. Like they, um, it, it was, it was so, it was so crazy. It's like because I didn't identify, um, it as addiction at the time. When I was going through it, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm physically addicted to opiates, but I don't have an addiction problem. Like once I'm off of the opiates, I'll be fine. Like I can do all this other stuff, and it won't be a problem. Did anyone advise you during your treatment that you should be abstinent from all drugs and alcohol, or did you just hear that and oh, ignore it? No, they, they definitely did. So my, uh, my therapist at the time, uh, the thing that worked to his detriment was the fact that he wasn't in recovery himself for me when dealing with me as a client because um, he did suggest that I remain abstinent from everything. And my next follow-up question was, well, are you abstinent from everything? And then he, he said, well, no. And I was like, well, then how can you give me advice or help guide me to be abstinent and everything if you don't know how to do it yourself? So, your, so like, your addiction that, was definitely like, driving the bus. <laughs> so that's oh, yeah, without a doubt. No, without you know, a doubt. You, yeah, and like. It, when you mention comparison, yeah. uh, I, often, mm-hmm. I often say, I don't know, I'm not sure I thought of this. I'm sure someone told me this, but. Our addiction <laughs> compares and looks for differences. Recovery compares to other people and looks for similarities. And I was so as long actually, as lo- that's what I was going to tell you was my saving yeah. grace. That actually brings me to the second time I went to treatment. <laughs> and so, interestingly enough, it was exactly 60 days um, from the date that I had left that program and coined out. I was back in that same program. I called the same place because it was familiar. It was comfortable. So I called the same exact place. Uh, I wound up having the exact same therapist. And I went in and I was like, I I don't know what I need to do. Like last time I thought I knew, but this time I'm really just going to listen to what it is that you guys have to say. And I'm going to take direction rather than trying to figure it out myself. um, I need help. And so he told me that the best thing I could do for myself would be to, to not, not do so much talking this time and really do a lot more listening and yeah. as I started to listen to people around these group center or these group rooms, the one thing that I would say was consistent was the pain and the hurt that people felt. And that's why they decided to use. And so what I realized is that like, you know, my story, my background, um, my circumstances may be drastically different from somebody else. But the reason why I used was, was very much the same. Like I had a poor self-image. Um, I, I didn't necessarily have the, the right kind of self-discipline. Like, yeah, I was able to do things and like maintain some sort of facade, but I didn't have self-discipline in terms of taking care of myself. And, um, and I had really poor self-talk and I had a lack of self-awareness and all of those things culminated that whenever anything negative would happen to me, I blew it up to a 1000 and I mm-hmm. felt emotions on a much more grander scale. And that's the one thing that I saw consistent with every single person was that we felt deeply and that we felt bad about what it was that we did, and we didn't want to think about that stuff anymore. And, like, that's why we, we turned towards substances. And once that clicked for me, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely an addict. 
Like it hasn't gotten that as bad as some of what of these other people and what it is that they've struggled through and what it is that they've had to overcome. But thank goodness for me, it doesn't have to. This can be the worst that it ever gets. So was that a 30-day treatment that you went to the second time around? Same program. Yeah, it was a 30-day treatment. Yeah, so I did um, one 30-day treatment and outpatient after that 30-day treatment where I was manipulating the system the entire time. And then I went back to that 30-day treatment again. And the one thing that I would say really measured up to that particular time being successful for me was um, the fact that they instructed and really suggested that I look into long-term treatment post that initial 30 days. So they didn't just like suggest, okay, you do 30 days and then you'll be okay. They're like, let's set you up for something really long term. And so I wound up looking into a five month program after that. And, uh, and I wasn't happy about it, but I knew that it was probably be the best thing for me because my addiction was trying to convince me I didn't need it. Um, and I was scared to go, but I was like, if I'm frightened to go to this thing, then more than likely it's the best thing for me. So I, I wound up going. Were the, you said that was outpatient treatment? Originally? Um, the long-term treatment is uh, – well, the long-term treatment was um, – so I did 30 days through foundations in a place in Tennessee, and then mm-hmm. I did an outpatient back home where I was using the whole time. Oh, and then I okay. went back to a 30-day treatment center again. And then this last one, I kind of went to a hybrid re- residential outpatient. It's called Treehouse Recovery. It's in Costa Mesa, California. And that's the program that I graduated where I've maintained sobriety the entire time since. And that's the program that, um, that gave me the opportunity to start working in admissions counseling, um, which is what I do now. And then they also like helped me figure out like my passion for life coaching and peer recovery coaching. So Treehouse Recovery, well, Foundations Recovery um, like helped me get a clear mind and then Treehouse Recovery really helped me build the foundation. Okay, I'm really fascinated by all this. And like I said, a lot of us are new to whatever recovery is. So just mm-hmm. this is the explain it to me like I'm five thing, because <laughs> I know there's going to okay. be some listeners who don't know the difference. So explain the difference between inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, mm-hmm. and the logistics of outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. And then I've never heard of hybrid before. So explain those three scenarios for us. Of course. So um, Treehouse Recovery itself is really unique um, beyond just like the the structural setup. So the easiest thing to do is to talk about inpatient, which is normally um, either a detox or a residential level of care, meaning that you you go there and you stay there. So detox is typically roughly five five to seven days, sometimes a little bit longer depending on your substances. There's a, a nurse that's there on staff and a doctor on staff that's helping you along the way, making sure that all your vitals and everything are good, um, really paying acute care to you. And then when you go to residential, it's a little bit less of that, but you're still um, receiving nurse care, like nurse practitioners, like psychiatrists, that stuff is happening. Typically, it's roughly a 30-day stay, and again, you're staying on location, most times with detoxes and residentials, um, you're not going to be able to leave the grounds. Like you can always get up and, and leave against clinical advice, but for the most part, you're, you're secluded to the premises unless they take you on out. Um, an outpatient c- scenario, there's variations of outpatient. 
Um, but a true outpatient scenario is that you stay in the comforts of your own home and then you show up um, to a location and participate in some sort of group environment for, for roughly like two to three hours um, once or twice a week. And then what's a hybrid then? then? The hybrid, the hybrid's really unique. So Treehouse Recovery um, focuses on camaraderie and teamwork. So it's technically designated as an outpatient, which would be anything from partial hospitalization, which is six to eight hours of treatment a day, five days a week, all the way down to outpatient, which is what we were just talking about, roughly two to four hours a week. But with Treehouse, it's unique. So what they do is that they have houses where each team lives and each team operates almost like its own little culture. And so when you go into this situation, you understand that you're going to be living on the premises with um, like with your team, you guys are free to, to roam and navigate um, as long as you're in a team, team dynamic or a team setting. And then you participate in these treatment modalities. So you go back and forth between like a treatment office or whatever else the modality is. And you live in that, in that situation. Now, some places will start off as that. And what they'll do is, is that they will start to titrate you down after that or, or start to gradually move you down after that. What it is that we do is that we actually keep you at that same level of care the entire time that you're with us. So for five months, you're actually at that six to eight hours of treatment a day, five days a week with your team living in that household. So that is similar to a sober living situation, but it's tied to a program then, and that's what makes it a hybrid, right? That you you have like exactly. I like that. Yeah. And that, isn't that what causes relapse for a lot of people is that they can do okay in treatment because they're in this. If it's inpatient treatment, you're in this protective bubble where the world mm-hmm. is set up for you, but you go back to your own environment, yeah. your own circumstances, to whatever maladaptive situation you got yourself in at home. <laughs> And all of those yep. protective layers are gone, and that, for a lot of people, is what is the reason why they, why they have you know relapse and, and have to keep going back. No, you're, no, you're one hundred percent right. I mean, what, what what it really comes down to is that for however long, the easiest way to think about it is like this: like if you if you think about what it is that you do for a profession, and you think about day one, and how hard that was to to do whatever it is, and let's just say. Um, you know, for, for lack of a better term, let's just say it, it was construction. And so day one, you're expected to put up a wall in a house. The length of time that it would take you to figure out how to do that, how to do it well, um, it would be really difficult on day one. Even if you did it for 30 days, it would be easier on day 30, but it would still be pretty hard compared to somebody who had been doing it for months. And so ultimately what it is is that you're talking about cognitive restructuring. So for years we had told people or told ourselves rather um, that we needed these substances in order to survive or in order to make social situations more, um, you know, manageable or, or whatever it was. So we created that narrative and we strengthened that, that neural pathway over and over and over again, over the course of years, months, whatever it is for you. And then we're, we're hoping that over the course of 30 days, when the brain's just trying to get through the chaos, what we're putting it through in terms of, um, you know, detoxing off of these substances, we're hoping that something's going to stick for life. And then you go right back to the same situation where you're, you're faced with the same triggers, the same stressors, and you haven't allowed your brain to really create that new neural pathway, that cognitive restructuring that's going to really support a new lifestyle. 
So that's the, in my opinion, um, I think that that's where the magic happens is, is post 30 days and roughly like in that 90, that 90 day window to six month window. Um, even if you're, you know, if you're doing it a different way from how I chose to, to go through treatment, that's really where you see a lot of positive growth. That's where taking up new hobbies, like doing as many new things as possible and teaching your brain a different way to live other than how it was living before, I think is crucial. And that's really what Treehouse taught me is that like, it's about creating new experiences, new victories and learning how to process through those things in a new way. And that's going to create new neural pathways, which has to result in change. If you're doing everything different, something different's got to happen for you. Was you know you were living a life that on the outside looked successful to other people, mm-hmm. so um, was it hard for you to identify the things that you needed to change when when you reentered your old life? Did you reenter your old life, or did you build an entirely new one? What what are you doing differently? Yeah, that's a really 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 good question. And if I'm being one hundred percent completely honest with you. When I first came um, into this situation, understanding that sobriety was going to be a lifelong endeavor and that it was going to be, you know, constant self-assessment, you know, regular self-awareness checks, um, really making a commitment to bettering myself for life. My ultimate goal was always five months in treatment, complete this treatment program, and then get back to law school and finish. That was my goal, always. And at month three for me, uh, one of my teammates at Treehouse asked me, um, you know, why are you in such a rush to feel better? <laughs> and for whatever reason, that like really stuck with me, and I was and I didn't have an answer. And you know, even just through talking right here, I'm sure you can tell that like it's rare that I'm at a, lo- a loss for words. So <laughs> when that happened, um, it was it was really it really hit home. And so I decided at that point that my plan was to have no plan, and I would know. I would know when it was when it was the right time for me to go back. And so at six months sober, I got offered a job at Treehouse to help build the admissions department here. There was nothing that existed before. So I helped build out an admissions department. And then um, I just, just kept plugging away. I was like, I'll know when it's time. I'll know when it's time. I'll know when it's time. And so at – over a year ago now, but I I was coming up on the end of that extension. So full circle. So I was coming up on the end of that extension that I was given for my um, law degree. And I would have had to to start that next semester in order to finish on time, like in order to have like a a pretty lax schedule. And so I went back to school and I purposefully sought out the woman who I believe saved my life. And when I sat down with her and started talking to her, about things um she again just asked me one simple question and was like do you really want to be a lawyer and i never asked myself that before you know i I felt like that i wanted to do it because it was some sort of prestige uh, aligned with it or, or felt like it was what i was supposed to do but i don't think that my heart was ever really in it and it just so happened that at this time um i had made really good friends with a woman who worked across the street from, from my company. And she had a younger sister who was my age. And that younger sister actually had just contacted me when I was on that trip. So here I am with like a huge fork in the road where it's like, you know, in the next two months I could be moving all the way back across the country again um, to complete my legal degree. And then like, on the other hand, there's this, you know, new opportunity um, with this beautiful woman. There's this, 
you know, program that I'm helping build up, build from the ground up. Um, there's a lot of unknowns on this side, but there's a lot of knowns on, on the other side going back to what I was used to. And that question from that teacher, again, I set my life on like the positive trajectory where I was like, you know, it's worth taking a chance. I've built something really amazing for myself. And I think I should continue to see where this is at. And school will always, you know, it's always going to be there for me if I want to go back to it, but these opportunities may not. And so I decided to dive full in and this was the first time I ever um, gave myself over completely to, to the life that I was building and amazing things just started to happen for me after that. I mean, fell utterly and deeply in love with that woman, became engaged super quickly because um, I just knew she was the one. She actually came back home to West Virginia with me when my grandfather passed. And I watched her walk down the hallway with my grandmother and my grandmother had her head on her shoulder and it was like the sky had parted and like the angels were singing and I was like, I, I know she's the one. And so we got engaged <laughs> and then, um, the, and then our child came and I started getting in, involved with, uh, with life coaching and peer recovery coaching and had my drug and alcohol counseling certifications. And once all of this stuff had happened and like materialized, it was like, I have this clear path that's set this way. And if I had tried to force my life to happen rather than allowing life to happen for me, um, you know, I wouldn't have the beautiful life that it is that I have today. And really what it was for me was, was not feeling constricted by the expectation of others or even the expectations of myself and rather just like making the best choice with the choices that I had available to me and like running that by people and like playing the tape through for all those things and just, you know, it's a good thing to have choices, I think. And so I, I really, really, really feel blessed that I stopped forcing my life to happen because that's what I was doing before. That's what was making me sick was that I kept trying to force my situation over and over and over again. I think, you know, John Lennon said it best when he was like, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And it's like, I just finally stopped like forcing it to happen for me and allowed life to happen um, the way that it was going to. And it unfolded really beautifully for me and it continues to unfold beautifully for me. And so I feel like extremely blessed. And I know that, none of it would have been possible if I would have like really tried to grab the reins on my life and like really just, you know, try to force something to happen. So I'm curious about your family's response to this change in direction with your career <laughs> and your life. And, mm -hmm. you know, just from what you've said about your family being sort of high achievers and um, mm -hmm. having some, maybe some unspoken expectations on you or what you interpreted, to be expectations, mm -hmm. and often what what we as children interpret are in no way what what parents are trying to <laughs> project. But exactly. how did that go over, and you what's your relationship like with them? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where are you at with with your family now? So, um, at first, well, okay. So I think that's okay. So here's a funny story. So when I'd made a decision that I wasn't going to go back to West Virginia immediately after um, Treehouse the first time, so five months, um, it was around day 90, and I made a phone call back to my mom. And I was like, Mom, there's been a change in plans. And she goes, what's the change in plans? I was like, well, there is no plan. And then I hung up the phone immediately. And that was it. That was all that I said, like in the presence of my therapist. And I remember my therapist looking at me, and he was like, thanks for that. 
And I was like, thanks for what? And then he was like, well, now I have to, he was like, now I have to explain everything. I was like, no, you don't. I was like, she just has to, she just has to sit on it for a little bit. It'll be fine. And then he was like, you don't want to call her back and explain? I was like, no. I'm like, not right now. So that like goes to show the, the amount of anxiety I put on myself regarding having those conversations. Lo and behold, like long, long afterwards, I was talking to my mom about that recently. She was actually just out here to visit her granddaughter. And um, when it, when it really comes down to it, I know this now being a parent myself, grand new parent, but I look at my daughter and I can, and I know what I feel. And it's, you know, ultimately the only thing that comes up for me is that I want her to have a happy, healthy life. Like that's it. I just want her to be happy and I want her to be healthy. Everything else is bonus. And I think that my parents knew that I was neither of those things before. And I think that they can see me now and they know that I'm both of those things in excess and in surplus. And I think that that makes them happy. Um, I know that it makes my mom happy and I know that it makes my dad proud. And it's interesting, um, you know, three years ago, whenever I was saying that, you know, I don't know if I want to go back to law school. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, there was definitely, you know, well, if you, if you're not going to do that, you need to figure something else out. And then over the course of this last year and a half, I think that, um, you know, with the trajectory that I'm on and like, they, they know I'm, you know, they, they know that I'm capable. They know that I'm intelligent. Um, like they, they know my work ethic because they taught it to me. And I think that they, you know, they know I'm going to be, they know I'm already am successful, but they know I'm going to be even more successful because you know the proof's in the pudding. It's like the guy who makes a million dollars and loses it all. Well, it's easier for him to make a million dollars again because he's done it once. I think that they have that same mentality for me. And like, I remember talking to my dad about everything about two weeks ago and he was like, you know, I'm just really happy and proud of you for where you're at in your life. And that's, you know, that's huge for, for a dad from West Virginia, a good old boy who picked himself up by his bootstraps and just, you know, trucked away at life um, for him to, to give an attaboy like that is huge. And so it's um, the relationship has been like Rocky um, because, you know, they, of course they had like this idea, like, oh, their son's going to come back to a small town, West Virginia, he's going to raise a family here and we're going to, you know, it's going to look like this. And ultimately, again, like John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. It's like, you know, my life didn't turn out the way that I don't, you know, I don't think any parent would have predicted, thought, or like wanted my life to turn out the way that it did up into a point. But now it's, it's more than what they could have ever wanted for me because I'm happy and I'm healthy. You know, it didn't shape out the way that we thought that it was going to, but it shaped out better than any way that we, we ever could have imagined it to. Because I can tell you right now, like if I were working in a legal profession, 70 hours a week, um, you know, being away from my kid that long and like not being able to spend that much time uh, with the love of my life and like, you know, having like really strained relationships with my family as it is, like I, I talk, my dad and I have the best relationship we've ever had. Um, my mom sees sees her grandchild easily um, once a month, if not if not two times a month, and it would be roughly the same if I were living in the same um, state anyway. So she makes a strong effort to come out here. And then like my you know my wife has eight brothers and sisters, which is crazy. Um, she has eight <laughs> brothers and sisters, and so I have a whole new network um, of, of people as well that I, that I'm extremely close to. And actually, surprisingly, my sister and I started our recovery journey around the same time and my sister moved out here 
um, after going through her own thing, trying to figure everything out. And she's now coming up on a year, and she lives less than um, 10 miles from me. So, I mean, like, it's, it's yeah. crazy the way that it all winds up playing out and the role that I was able to have in, in helping even save my own sister's life. And it's, you know, everything, I believe, happens for a reason. And I think that, you know, ultimately, in my, in my humble opinion and in my beliefs, I believe that God had a plan for me that I couldn't, I couldn't possibly imagine myself. And, you know, he's really set me on a trajectory to be able to do a lot of good. Like I think about what it is that I, I do for work, like life coaching, peer recovery coaching, admissions counseling, like these things save, you know, you should, um, or not you should, but, you know, this podcast, like these things save people's lives. That one conversation saved my life. And it's like, we're doing work that, you know, some people have to go to school for, for years and years and years, like doctors save lives. But what we are doing is just as on par as that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's a truly beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. And yet, you know, you, it, I guess I'm speechless at the thought of it, but it is, it is true that um, just by telling our, just by telling our stories and holding space for each other to tell our truth, um, Mm-hmm. That that's the power. That's the thin edge of the wedge for a lot of people. It's the, the the hour that you take out of your day to share your story could be the hour. Mm-hmm. Like could, this could be the episode that for somebody listening is the light bulb moment that that gives them the courage to change. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, that the power of that never ceases to blow me away um, because sometimes we think yeah. of being heroic as you know or doing big things in life as you know running into a burning building and and um i mean that's important too <laughs> but it's it's just yeah all that time. No, all that stuff is important yeah and you know you, that, sure that, that teacher i'm sure you have well, i was gonna say i'm sure you have the same stuff happen for you um for as what i have happened for me like um i've made amazing connections with with mothers with fathers with brothers and um you know, whether it be through, through Treehouse Recovery or through Hope Guides, which is what I, that's, that's my company, like any of these things um, where I'm able to get in contact with people and like, and I'm able to help them see a different life course for themselves and help guide them on the, on the initial footsteps to be able to have that happen. Like people still reach out and they're telling me like, you know, you really, you gave us hope and hope is the building block and the foundation for life, especially to somebody that's, um, you know, struggling with this because I, I didn't see a hope for myself ever overcoming it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, the teacher, like you, like you were um, getting started on it. She's like, I think about the courage that she must've had to, to really take that, to really take that leap of faith. And like be even beyond that, the, you know, how astute she was to be able to have that conversation in a way that was non-confrontational and just really from a place of love and, you know, I think about the power that all of us have to be able to do that for people, you know, and if we were more armed in having those conversations, like how, how much could we mitigate unnecessary suffering? And that's really my life's mission is to, is to try to mitigate and eliminate, you know, overall unnecessary suffering for people. There's a lot of people who do it in the shadows and like, unless that conversation's had, they'll never open up about it. I know that mm-hmm. would have been me. I would have continued on that trajectory. And, like, I would have been, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old maybe still struggling with it. 
But you lived that long. My story. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I know, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, as you say that, it it occurs to me. I mean, your that teacher asked you three questions that changed your life. Are you okay? But it was more than mm-hmm. that because she backed it up with, I'm guessing. I wasn't there, but I'm going to guess that something about Mm -hmm. the way that she conducted herself let you know that she wasn't rushing off to the next class. Sometimes we say, hey, how are you? And we tell uh, just the way we say it and what we're doing when we say it communicates to that person, I don't have time to hear anything but good, how are you, (laughs) in response, right? (laughs) I mean, versus... When you ask the question and you raise yourself, yeah, you're prepa- she was prepared to to give you the time you needed to give her an answer and to help you afterwards. I mean, it's not just asking the question. It's the gift of time and the follow-up and the listening and the oh aftercare gosh. to that question. I mean, that's... We, we sat in her office for two, for two hours. That one question led into a two-hour conversation of me beating around the bush until I finally admitted exactly what was happening it was you know I, I was bringing up all these circumstances and all these things that were happening I was like no I'm by and then it started with well it, it, it's the pressures of this and it's and it's this and it's that and it's this and it's that and then finally like every time I would share a little bit she would share a little bit more about her and then when she came to the point where she said it saved my life that somebody else was taking that step with me you know and somebody else had pointed these things out to me that's really what what hit me hit me at home because she shared that with her before I shared what I was struggling with. And she was like, I'm not mm-hmm. saying this is what's happening with you, but I'm saying this is my story. And then when she said that and she was willing to get that vulnerable with me and I was like, my, the same thing's happening to me, but I feel like it's worse. And then I told her what was happening for me. And then she's like, I can help you. She's like, let me help you. And then I just broke down. And, and and I was like, what, I don't care what I have to do, like like help me. And so we she she started the process for me. And like I, I was I wanted to get to I didn't want to feel the way at that point I didn't want to feel the way that I felt. Like and I could admit to that. I don't know that I was ready to get sober then, but I knew I didn't want to feel that way about myself anymore. So now that you're and then it was the another sixty who's... days before I was committed to that. Yeah, I mean it it doesn't happen immediately always and. For mm-hmm. those of us that have family members in recovery, I think we have to remember that um, because that's, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is the hard part of it is that sometimes it takes time and sometimes it takes a few tries, but we can't give up. Mm-hmm. Now that you're the, now mm-hmm. that you're on the other side of that conversation as, as a person who helps other people at this crossroads in their life, um, uh, tell me what is the, what is the hardest part about that and what is the best part about it? Yeah, the, I'm being completely honest with you. The hardest part that stinks about um, just overall, and I'm sure that you experience a degree of this too, is like when you're when you're speaking to to somebody and, and you're you're listening to their pain, like the history of their pain. Um, it's it's hard to a degree to to not have some of that transpose onto you or take up some of your emotional well, if you will. Like there's only, um, luckily I've gotten a lot better at it, but in the beginning it was really hard for me because every mother I spoke to would remind me of my mother and what it was that she was going through or every father that I was speaking to would remind me of mine. 
and by the time that like I would get home at the end of the night, it was like I took that stuff home with me, and that was really, really, really difficult. Um, the the better I've gotten, and the more um, you know, the more experience that I've developed, the more that it's easy, it's become easier for me to to understand that you know they they need me and I need them. Like I need them to help me. Um, remember what it used to be like and where and where I was at, but they need me because I've I've walked through it. I like to liken recovery a lot of times to a desert, and if you're trying to cross it alone, whether you're um, the parent trying to help your loved one through recovery or a loved one trying to help a loved one through recovery or the person trying to walk through recovery, um, you know it's an unknown desert. You've never crossed it before, and even if we think biblically, like they claim that it, it took 40 years to cross the desert. Now, if you map quest it. And you, look, and you look at how long it would take to walk, it says six days. And the reason why is because somebody has walked that path and found the shortest path, the shortest distance from point A to point B. And they've been able to eliminate a lot of strife and a lot of struggle. And what I realize is that my history, my journey, my being able to help these people through it, I've literally walked people through the desert a um, hundred times, you know, more than that. But Honestly, it's like every time that I do it, I become better at doing it, and I and I help out the next person. I think that the most beautiful part of this whole thing is like watching lives get changed, watching hope, um, you know, come back into these loved ones who who maybe not didn't feel any before, and like actually feeling like the the love for their loved one, like like through the phone, like listening to the passion. Because one of the questions that I always ask is that I want people to remember a time when when this wasn't an issue. And like describe their loved one to me then, or describe me what your to describe to me what your life was like then, when all of this stuff wasn't going on. Like what are some of the beautiful traits that are about this person, and then telling them that like that's still there. Unfortunately, like the limbic system has overridden that, but that person's going to come back out full force, if not, you know, ten times more improved, because they're going to have all the life experience on top of it. And then just like watching the hope come back into people, I think is, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, that's not something that I would have gotten in the legal profession. Unfortunately, um, you know, where it's interesting and it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's mentally challenging. Um, ultimately it's also morally challenging for me because I made a commitment to myself when I got sober that I wasn't going to lie anymore. And so that made it really tough to, you know, for a legal profession because ultimately, what I would have been doing, what I wanted to do was criminal defense. So I would have been bending truths and that, you know, that's a moral dilemma for me. And so ultimately it's, um, you know, I get to, I get the best of both worlds in doing this where, you know, I get to tell parents the truth of like their loved one is there and they're going to get better. You know, if they make this commitment to work on themselves, I know because I've done it and I've watched it happen for other people. And it's, you know, that's something that never ceases to amaze me is, is just how, how much, how far hope can actually go um, for a single individual. I think that's the most amazing thing. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I want to ask you as well about your wife. You've mentioned your beautiful wife and the mother of your new baby. (laughs) Tell us a little bit Mm -hmm. about your relationship. And I know we just have a few minutes left and we could talk for hours about marriage and recovery, but um, Mm -hmm. recovery and relationships. Um, how just mm-hmm. what what advice do you have for people that are you know 
in recovery? Do you have do you have ground rules? Do you have code words? Do you have, you know, what <laughs> what um, how does that work? And um, and what does your wife like? How did, did is your wife in recovery, or does she? She's has, did she ever know you before? Like, how does that all work? <laughs> no. Yeah, no. So um, one of the things I was suggested when going through this program was no relationships for a year, like none. <laughs> That's what was suggested to me um, at the very beginning. And I, I took heart and I took heed because I knew that, you know, the quality of um, person that I was attracting in my life in general, because um, I didn't like myself, right? So I was looking for, for, for people that were, were like-minded and similar-minded. And so I wouldn't have attracted a healthy relationship because I wasn't healthy. So I would have attracted a, an unhealthy relationship. And so I, that wasn't my focus. My focus was me. I needed to develop a relationship with myself for at least a year and one that I really cared and cherished and loved. So that was my first focus. And then um, after that, I focused on re- repairing my relationships with my families and loved ones. And so that was my next focus. And then this is, um, you know, to say that it was an accident or that it just kind of happened, I, I think is, um, you know, not necessarily fair. I, I believe it was divine intervention, to be completely honest with you. Um, she was exactly what I needed at the exact right time. And so she, she's not in recovery herself. Um, she's chosen to live a life of abstinence, um, which I think is amazing. She completely free of her, you know, she did it all on her own and made that decision but she's not somebody that struggled with substance abuse or, or addiction. And so we made that decision for our household, um, you know, before any of this stuff had actually happened. And it was truly beautiful to feel that support. And I think that when it comes to relationships and recovery, um, just the level of self-awareness that I think that people in recovery have, they make for excellent, amazing partners. Um, Because one uh, you know, we were able to recognize our faults in situation. Um, so we're, we're not always pointing the, fi- the finger, I don't think. I think that we're, we're able to see like, okay, there's two sides to every story. And we're, we're quick to admit our side and wanting to repair our side. Um, so I think that that makes us excellent partners. I also think that, you know, constant self-awareness and wanting to improve makes, for, makes us for excellent partners as well. Um, because it means that you know, whenever you met us, that's the worst we're ever going to be because we're on, on a constant path of self-improvement. And, um, you know, I know that that's what, what my wife recognized. I'm sure that, you know, if she were here right now, if you asked her what one of her favorite qualities about me are, is that, like, I have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. So I'm always seeking to improve myself and become the best version of myself that I can. And I understand that that's a life journey. And I think that that's true for a lot of people that are in recovery is that we, we really want to push to figure out like what is our ultimate potential? Because I think that we, you know, or I know that I spent so long, you know, trying to chase this conception of what I thought it was versus seeing what it really is. So I think that that's exciting for her is to know that, you know, I'm on this forward momentum and this forward trajectory to become the best version of myself. And she, she loves me for who I am today. So, I mean, she, she tells me every day she falls more in love with me every day. So I'm very blessed, very fortunate. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And I really love your explanation of taking that first year of recovery to just have the relationship with yourself and not other people, because a lot of people mm-hmm. blow off that recommendation. They're like, what? No way. I can't mm-hmm. do this. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like saying, you know, you should, I don't know, 
I'm going to say floss daily or whatever thing, you know, is recommended that people don't do, you know, brush your dog's teeth or whatever. They're like, oh, that's way too hard. I'm not doing that. But it sounds. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to honestly, it's not it's not an easy thing to, to spend that much time with yourself. Like, I mean, if you think about it, we spent so long trying to turn our heads off because we didn't like our own company. And so I, 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 I wanted to, to to want to be with myself like. I wanted to be okay by myself. And so when it, when it came to having a relationship with myself, um, ultimately, how could I, you know, give the best version of myself to somebody if I didn't even know what that was, you know? And I, and I spent so long trying to, trying to like, you know, invest myself in all these other things, you know, whether it were people or activities or, or scholastics, like no matter what it was, I invested everything into everybody else and, that, and then it left nothing left for me. And so I, I think I just made the decision that, you know, it was time that, that I got a little bit selfish in this regard and really spend the time to focus on me because I deserve it, you know, and I think everybody deserves them time. But um, it was crucial for me. And I can see now why on, um, you know, looking back on it four years ago, why that suggested. And it's, it's because it's, it's honestly easy to distract ourselves um, from, from what else going on now, situation is different if you're, if you're already married and you're already in a relationship with somebody, but it's really about taking, taking that initial time and like having that love and respect for one another to, to understand that like, you know, I, I need the time to focus on me and like, you know, I'm here for you, but I need to focus on me because I, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've run across that too, where, um, family and loved ones where sometimes that's, that's difficult for loved ones to understand that there really needs to be um, some time to spend and focus on, on them and become reacquainted with themselves. And so I think that that's important for somebody that's in a loving relationship is, um, you know, really trying to explain to your loved one or, or hoping that you have the support from your loved one to, to have that time to focus on yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and actually, I think the recommendation, if I if I think of how it's often said, is that to avoid big changes in your relationships, right? Yes. So don't mm-hmm. don't maybe don't mm-hmm. um, start that divorce in your first year, or just just wait, just wait and see where <laughs> things settle out before mm-hmm. you join or leave new relationships because you're going to change exactly so much in that first year. Yeah, that's again exactly. that's a whole other or, or, or even take them to yeah, or even take them to new steps like. Um, yeah. I, I remember there was an individual who I was going through through treatment with that had like a um, 14 year relationship with a you know an awesome young lady, and he wanted to you know he was feeling great about life. It was six months, um, and, and he wanted to to propose, and we were like, dude, just just hold out just a little bit longer. It'll be okay. And so mm-hmm. like it was a constant um, thing, like a daily thing where he's like, but I, I know I want to, and it's like no, we know just like just wait a little bit longer. And you know, today they're happily married and everything's like really good to go. But he waited, so like he waited to make that to make that plunge and that and that leap because he, you know, we all prescribe to the idea of taking that time for ourselves. So I mean, I'm again like super awesome place that I landed in. Yeah, well, that is wonderful. Well, mm-hmm. I am afraid that our hour has blown by as per usual. But before oh I God. let you go. Tell our listeners where mm-hmm. they can find you online, how they can learn more about you and the things that you're involved in. Of course. Yeah. So um, you can reach out to me on my, you can reach out to me via email at jacob.e. So that's Jacob period E as an echo at treehouserecovery.com. And you can reach me via email there. 
Um, of the program that I mentioned that I, I work as an admissions counselor for is Treehouse Recovery. That's treehouserecovery.com. So you can go there. As far as um, life coaching goes, you can reach me at hopeguides.com. And then that's my personal, that's my personal company and my personal webpage. So if you, if you go to any of those three mediums, you can email me directly. Um, you can check out Treehouse Recovery and, and call the number. You'll, you'll more than likely get um, sent to me. Or you can go into hopeguides.com um, and you can reach me directly there as well. Uh, any three of those mediums are more than fine to get in touch with me. Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your story. I really appreciate it, especially now that I know you're a sleep devi- sleep-deprived new dad. <laughs> Every hour mm-hmm. that you could be sleeping is a precious hour. So thank you so much. And it's just really, really lovely to hear your story and to hear where you landed after all you've been through. So thank you for sharing your story and of your course, home today. Of course. Yeah, no problem. I I appreciate you taking the time to allow me to share it. And again, it's been a long time coming. We we scheduled it out before your vacation, so I've been anticipating it. And I, I'm I'm glad that it finally came. And it went by fast, but I'm I'm glad that we were able to <laughs> set this up. Thank you for the time. Thank you for being here. And listeners, thank you for listening. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong. Want to be free.